Well, if you would uh, open your Bibles up to Second uh, Samuel, we're starting our new series today, getting back to some Old Testament uh, narrative, great stories, fun to preach. I want to say a couple things as, as we jump into this. First of all, preaching is, is basically uh, expl- explanation and application. Those are kind of the two parts, if you put it very simply, explaining the text, applying the text. When you have an Old Testament narrative and you're jumping into kind of a bigger context like this, there tends to be a little more explanation, and especially when you're starting a book. So you'll see that today. There's a lot of explanation going on before we get to uh, the application in the text. Also, you should remember that we tend to take a little bigger sections and explain them than we would in an epistle or something like that. So you'll see us taking larger sections of the text and looking for those big themes for our application. I also just wanted to say that uh, two of the main books that I'm, uh, commentaries that I'm using, are one is by Dale Ralph Davies, a wonderful commentary if you're interested in uh, kind of studying along. Also John Woodhouse, who was my uh, Old Testament professor in seminary, has written a wonderful commentary on it, which I'll be leaning heavily on, both his work from seminary and, uh, and his commentary, and I'm leaning on that this morning. And uh, Let me just pray one more time before we get started. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, all the, the textures of your word, from epistles to your gospels to the psalms to these Old Testament narratives, Lord. We pray that as we come to this, Lord, you would work in our hearts that we would sit under your word, that we would be able to glean from it uh, the truths that point us to your son. And uh, Lord, that you would, you would shape us, that you would change us from these ancient texts by your spirit right down to our daily lives. And we pray these things in your name, amen. Now, Second uh, Samuel, to put it simply, is the story of King David. First Samuel uh, gave us the story of King Saul, and, and in it we hear a bit about David's early life, and it kind of shows his rise. But Second Samuel is the story of David, particularly his reign. If you haven't read First Samuel, I would say read it. I also preached a series on it. That's why we're actually in 2 Samuel, not in 1 Samuel. I preached through it. You can go listen online if you would like. But it's obviously crucial background to 1 Samuel. It's crucial background to 2. Now, King David is undoubtedly one of the most celebrated and influential characters in history. Many cultures today have been profoundly affected by his life or at least the the writings and memoirs of it. His adventures and and mishaps have been captured in children's storybooks, recorded in songs, put on the big screen, and even portrayed by cartoon vegetables. His image and heroics have been etched in stone and painted on canvas and sculpted by some of the greatest artists of our time, the most famous being Michelangelo's statue of David. His life has been so pervasively influential 
that your average person living today, over 3,000 years removed from David, and probably not even having read, having read the Bible, not only knows who David is, but probably has an image of him in their head and knows what it means to face your Goliaths. He's literally affected our figures of speech. His life is an amazing lesson for all of us. And it all goes back to this book, the story of David's life as recorded in 2 Samuel. That's where it all comes from. It's such a powerful and profound piece of historical literature that it casts a shadow of influence through the centuries all the way down to us. So we should be pretty excited, I think, to, to read this and to study this text. Whether you're a Bible believer or not today, you should want to engage with te this text because it's already engaged with you. But here's the question. How do we read this book? How do we engage with it? As Christians, how can we apply this ancient text about a Jewish king to our lives in a relevant, real way? I remember when I was in high school, I had a Jewish friend, and he asked me this. He said, why do you Christians read our ancient holy texts about our Jewish forefathers and think they have anything to do with you? It's bizarre. I'm not even sure they have anything to do with me. And I'm Jewish, this is what he said. It's a good question. Should we just take these teachings from these texts straight to our lives, like we do the teachings of Jesus to the disciples, or, or the teachings of the epistles to the church, where we take them straight to us? Is that how we should read these texts? Because if we do, we'll run into some problems. I mean, you've got polygamy and genocide and animal sacrifice. What do we do with those? And our lives. How do they fit? Should we just hold David up as our hero, our moral example, the kind of be like David approach? We're kind of like, well, that makes sense. And we, we say yes when he bravely faces Goliath, but, you know, what about when he sleeps with Bathsheba? Oh, well, no. We say yes when he repents and seeks God, and no when he murders Uriah or has him murdered. Yes, when he speaks about injustice and punishes evil. No, when he takes on more concubines. What, how, what do we do? There's problems with that approach, isn't there? How do we read this book rightly as teaching for us as Christians today? Well, let me suggest one important rule that will kind of lead out to some others. And that is, we must remember the big kingdom picture. This story about David's kingdom is set in the context of the whole story of the Bible, which is about the kingdom of God. The Bible is about God bringing in his kingdom. It's about him establishing his rule in this world and over people's lives. Now, I'm going to overview this for a second. Some of you have heard me do this in a whole sermon for 45 minutes. But I'm just going to do a quick overview of God 
bringing in his kingdom. It all started back in the Garden of Eden. That's where we see the first perfect kingdom of God, although the word kingdom is not there. But you see the very elements of a kingdom. You have people, subjects of the kingdom. You have a place, the boundaries of the kingdom. That's the Garden of Eden. The people are Adam and Eve. They're in the boundaries, the Garden of Eden of the kingdom. And you have the ruler, God as king. That's what we see. God was perfectly ruling over his perfect subjects, Adam and Eve, as they lived in honorable obedience before him. And they were in God's perfect place, the Garden of Eden, where all their needs were met by their king, the perfect kingdom of God. But as we know, it was soon lost as Adam and Eve chose not to trust their king, God, and they sinned. And they were separated from his holy presence, no longer his people. They were cast from the garden, no longer in his place. And they were no longer submitting to his rule. The kingdom was lost. And the rest of the Bible is about God striving to restore that perfect kingdom. And in fact, in Genesis 12, he comes to Abraham. And what does he promise him? He said that through him, he would make his people his special people. And he would bring them to his special place, the promised land. And he would rule over them with his law. He would be their God, God's people in God's place under God's rule. He would restore the kingdom. And he did it. Through the hardship of Egyptian slavery, he grew them into a great nation of people. He gave them his law to rule over them. Then he brought them into the land in Canaan, this special place of blessing used. that The language used of it is the very garden language. And finally, after many years, he gave them a series of kings to rule over them as his representatives. That's where we are in the Bible, in 1 and 2 Samuel. And it all culminates at its peak under David, the greatest of these three kings. He takes his reign over God's people. And it's it's like, it's all back. The kingdom of God. Of God, God's people and God's place under God's rule. It's like the garden kingdom is back, except there's one problem. Sin is still there, even in their king. And as we read through these stories and get to the end, we find out that it all comes crashing down. The kingdom is conquered by enemies and dismantled. God's people are scattered, and it seems like the end. But God keeps his promises, doesn't he? And we read in the prophets that the prophets say, they point back and they say, that was just a shadow of the true kingdom to come. God's true kingdom. That he's sending his true forever king who will be in the line of David. And he will be God's very divine son. They make all these promises. And then in the fullness of time, Jesus shows up. And what does he proclaim as he begins his ministry? We read it in, we read the book of Mark. He comes on, Mark 1.15. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. This is the good news. God's kingdom is back. That's the good news that Jesus brings. He's the king who has arrived. And Jesus, he lived as God's king, didn't he? 
conquering demons, conquering disease, conquering death. He even goes to the cross and he conquers sin and judgment for us. And then he rises to his throne in heaven so that all who trust in him, the promise is we enter his kingdom, his blessing. We become his people in his place of blessing under his rule by faith. So Christians, what we need to understand as we come to this book is that we are kingdom people. And I'm going to read a few, a few scriptures. It's said all throughout the New Testament. But listen to Colossians. Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness. We have, we are kingdom people, and we have a kingdom message. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And we are kingdom workers. Jesus says in, in Matthew 24 this, But the one endure, who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Kingdom people with a kingdom message, and we are kingdom workers, and we are kingdom prayers. We pray that kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, when we get this big kingdom picture, and we see the reign of, of David in light of God's overall kingdom work to be fulfilled in Jesus. And thus we see that we are kingdom people. We should relate to this book in two main ways. First, we should feel the depth that it brings to our faith. This book gives us this beautiful, real life, vivid all these stories of, of, of the kingdom, of kingdom life. It helps us understand how to live in this world and what it looks like to submit and honor our King Jesus in intangible ways. It's, it's, it's so powerful. It's raw, real-life people struggling to live under their king. Physical stories demonstrating our spiritual reality. These stories help us feel what we know from the epistles. Secondly, not only should we feel the depth of our faith in this book, but we should remember the distinction because of this big picture. We don't just take these stories straight to us. We look back at them through Jesus' kingdom victory on the cross. We stand this side of the cross of Jesus' work. We look through Jesus' kingdom work now back to David's kingdom. So we don't say, hey, David's kingdom was strengthened by the multiplication of many wives, which grew his dynasty through sheer birth rate. So, Christians, let's get to work. Growing God's kingdom the old-fashioned way. That's kind of cult, weird stuff, right? And we don't say, hey, Jesus has established his rule forever. Uh, excuse me. What we do say 
is that we say Jesus has established his rule forever at the cross. It is finished. And kingdom growth comes as we proclaim him and people submit to him and they come into his kingdom by bowing, bowing the knee. We apply this side of the cross. We don't say, hey, David's warriors protected his kingdom by killing off the enemies who threatened their borders. So, hey, Christians, it's time to take up arms as we fill under siege and kill off our... No. We know the victory was ultimately won over our enemy at the cross. And we don't fight against flesh and blood. We fight with the gospel and prayer. But not only do we know that we don't take these stories straight to us, we must go through Jesus and the cross. We also become aware, as we see this big picture of God's kingdom, whose shoes we are in in these stories. You see, we always want to put ourselves in whose shoes? We want to put ourselves in, in the hero's shoes. We want to put ourselves in David's shoes, don't we? But who is David in these stories? Who is he foreshadowing? He's God's chosen king to rule over his people. Is he like us? No, no, no. He's like Jesus. He's a shadow pointing forward to Jesus. Who are we like? Well, we're like his subjects. We're like the average, everyday Joe Israelite. That's whose shoes we should be in in most of these stories. It's an important thing to remember. We get this so wrong. Think of the story of David and Goliath, right? <laughs> we like to be in David's shoes. So this is about us facing our giants in our life, the bully at school or that mean boss at work, and we can overcome by faith if we have enough faith course we don't always overcome and we don't always have enough faith and we're missing the point because we're like not like David we're not God's representative going to fight for us we are like the scared Israelites on the hillside who can't do anything before this giant enemy and they watch God work out their salvation by his chosen king who conquers the enemy for them So we need to see the kingdom picture of the whole Bible and read this book with proper depth and proper distinction. We don't take these stories straight to us. They go through the kingdom of Jesus, and we must get in the right shoes. Those shoes are not David's. And we're going to see these rules applied as we go through these texts over the next months. And uh, we'll see it right now because we're going to get to this text. Now, if you're a bit worried about time, because it's taken us a while to get to the text, you need to know that I'm only preaching on one verse. I know we had 10 read, but I'm preaching on verse 1. That's it. Let's read it. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. 
Now this verse has two main parts. First, it talks about Saul dying. That's point one. Saul is dead. Then it talks about David, how he returned from striking down the Amalekites. That's point two, the return or the rise of David. So point one, Saul is dead. That's how this book starts. This is a big statement. The whole book of 1 Samuel, part one of this saga, is all about the life and reign of Saul. And if you remember it, or if you're here when I preached it, we know that Saul was the people's king. Before Saul, Israel had no physical king, right? God was their ruler, in, in, in a sense, by faith. Through his priests and prophets, he brought them his word on how to live as his people, and they lived that out by faith. They submitted to him. And when they were in need of provision or protection, they could appeal to him through prayer. So there was no visible or tangible figurehead king over them. Their invisible God, Yahweh, ruled over them, and they trusted him by faith. But as the years passed, and they had some very poor leadership, remember Samuel's sons, they began to struggle in sin, and soon they were being encroached on all borders by their enemies, and then they began to demand that God give them a king. And not just a king to represent his rule over them, but a king like what? Anybody remember? A king like the other nations had. That's what they wanted. A king like the other nations. Let me read what, they, what it says. Now, they said to Samuel, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And then verse 20, that we may also be like the nations and that our king may judge us and go before us and fight our battles. They wanted this tangible figure with a crown and riches and a palace and an army, a powerful figure that they could look to and hold up before their enemies. This would bring a certain predictability to how they could deal with threat and famine and a sense of, in, it would give them a sense of security, right? They wouldn't have to just pray in faith and wonder what God was going to do. They could have a king, a real-world mechanism for having some supposed control. And it would allow them, in a sense, not to have to live by faith alone. They could sort of have the power in their hands like the other nations. This is so real. We do this. You know that bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot? You know what that means? It means, God, I want you in control of my life, sort of. I want your guidance and your help when I feel I need it. You can be my co 
pilot. I want some backup plan. I don't want to fully trust you. Now, as evangelicals, we know that's not right. We say, wait, no, no, no. I know God is in the pilot seat. But we sort of reverse it, right? I am God's co-pilot. Yes, he's in control, but I want to have a little steering wheel as well. So I can have some control if I have to, just in case. Think of the ways we do this. That we have that, that backup plan for control. Maybe it's with politics. We don't say, hey, we want a king like the other nations. But no, we want our strong political leader that will provide and promote our agenda. That would be nice. That would make me feel a lot safer that way. Or perhaps it's financial. If I just have, yes, God, but I also have this financial, all this plan, this money. I can depend on that is will. If we have these things, then we don't have to live just by faith. Give us the backup. I've got something tangible then. And you know, you find out if your trust is really in those things when those things come falling apart, right? When my political leader is suddenly out of power and, and my party is out and I'm, I'm, and, and I'm suddenly, I'm like, everything's going to hell in a handbag. Better get more, better, more politically active and gain back some tangible security. My finances have taken a hit. Oh no, Lord, what have you done? Where are you? This is why the prosperity gospel churches are so popular. They bring them together. Finance and God. So God, being the patient teacher that he is, gives the Israelites what they want. In 2 and 1 Samuel, he warns them it won't be good, but he gives them such a king, a king like the nation's. Samuel picks him out. This is what it says about him in 1 Samuel chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. It's quite a statement. He is this tall guy, stands out, broad-shouldered, winning smile. Nobody more handsome than this guy. Wow. This is the guy you want to go negotiate with the other kings, right? You just want him to intimidate them by his sheer presence and charm. At a physical, physical level, I was trying to think, you know, who do you picture? Maybe Dwayne the Rock Johnson? This giant guy with this beautiful smile. John Cena. I'm just talking physically here. John Hamm. You know who I'm talking about? He's a beautiful man, that actor. We should make him king. But God makes one qualification as he gives them what they want. He says, he will only remain king if he fears the Lord and is obedient to his word and leads his people in obedience. God knows they've made a mistake, so he doesn't leave them hanging. He said, there's a qualification. He better obey, and he better lead you in obedience. 
And uh, we know that that doesn't go very well. Saul disobeys God's word and tries to take control into his own hands, and he begins to fail over and over and over as God begins to rip the kingdom from him. And Israel, Israel's enemies begin to dominate them more and more until Saul dies the most awful death a king could die. He takes his own life. He dies a complete failure as king. In fact, this manner of death was so shameful that there was no doubt that many would wonder if he was ever truly God's anointed, his Messiah. How could he? And the Israelites are left shattered, insecure. Their great leader is dead. The one they picked out as the best. He's dead and their enemies are looming. If Saul couldn't be their Messiah king, what hope is there? It's interesting. Their situation reminds me a lot of the disciples' situation we saw last week at Easter. Their great leader king, Jesus, is dead. He died shamefully. And they are scared, the disciples. Do you remember? Hopeless, hiding in the upper room, confused. Was he the Messiah? There's a very similar hopelessness and insecurity as Saul dies. Is God going to keep his promise of bringing in his grand kingdom? And that brings us to the second point of this text or of this verse. And that is the return or the rise of David. Although the book of 1 Samuel is dom dominated by the reign of Saul, in chapter 16 of that book, if you remember, Saul fails to keep God's word and we're introduced to David. Saul's told that he will lose the kingdom and we're introduced to David. He's not an impressive figure. He's just a shepherd boy. But he is anointed by Samuel to be the new king. Of course, Saul did not accept this new rival, and a long struggle would ensue as to who is Israel's true leader, Messiah. But the key difference between David and Saul is that David was chosen by God, not the people. Saul was the people's choice, a king like the other nations. David, according to 1 Samuel 13, 14, was a man after God's own heart. And let me, let me explain that phrase. That does not mean that David had this great heart seeking after God. That phrase actually is better translated to the idea that he takes after God's heart. He reflects God's heart. Saul was chosen out of the will of the people. David was chosen out of the heart of God. He is God's king. The one God is with. This is crucial. And note that as we are reminded of him here in this very first verse, we are reminded of him how? 
we're reminded of him acting in victory. David, it says, had returned, it says, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites. Striking down the Amalekites. Saul has failed and died shamefully. But what does it say of David? Well, David is having victory. Several hundred miles south of where Saul is, dying in his battle against the Philistines, David is striking down the Amalekites. We don't catch that because we forget who the Amalekites are. But the Amalekites were the very nation that Saul was commanded, they were arch enemies of Israel, and he was commanded to wipe them completely out, and he wouldn't do it. And that was the reason, that was the moment that God said, I will take my kingdom from you. David is now conquering them. David, this unassuming, humble shepherd king chosen by God as having victory over the greatest enemies of his people. As Saul goes down, David is rising. And note the little tidbit at the end of the verse. It's not random information. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. David remained two days down in Ziklag before he heads back to Israel in victory. For two days, God's people are in hopeless despair. Their God-appointed king is dead, having died a shameful death. Their enemies are all around them, and all seems lost. Again, it's like the disciples of Jesus after the shame of the cross. We saw them last week. For two days, they were in total despair and fear. Is the hope of God's kingdom lost forever? They had no peace. Their king had died a shameful death. But then on the third day, David returned. On the third day, Jesus arose in victory over the ultimate enemy, death itself. And he proclaimed to his disciples, peace. Do you see it? It's pretty interesting. In 1 Corinthians 15, 4, it says, Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And people say, well, where does it say that in scripture? Right here. pointing us forward. This book from verse 1, as it will all the way through, is pointing us to Jesus, the ultimate son of David, our risen king. And as we strive to live as kingdom people and learn from the, the vivid stories of, of the lives of those in David's kingdom... It's showing us that to be his kingdom people, to live kingdom life, it all starts with faith in our risen king. 
resurrection faith that we saw last week. Faith in our invisible, unseen, risen king. Faith that Thomas was challenged to. Blessed he who believes in what he has not seen. A trust in Jesus that doesn't need to be buttressed by tangible mechanisms of control, money, politics, leaders, power. No, it's, it's, it's a complete trust in the God who kept his promise to Israel to bring his kingdom from David all the way down to us through Jesus' very son risen on the third day. Not just a king after God's own heart, but the king with God's very heart. And he will keep his kingdom, people. And he will bring his kingdom to full fruition. That was the whole sermon series on Revelation, wasn't it? So we can and should be all about proclaiming, living and proclaiming his kingdom now. And we can, in secure faith, pray, thy kingdom come. And I'm going to close us in prayer now. And at the end of this prayer, I'm hoping we can have the Lord's Prayer up here. And I'll lead us in it. If it's not up there, I'll just pray it. But if it is, pray it with me. Father, we are so thankful that when we come to your word, it's, it's all for us, all of it. And that you have not just given us principles about kingdom living, you've shown it in your word, lived out in real people's lives as they struggled to live in your kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. Lord, we pray that as we go through this book, you would help us understand the depth of what it is to be your kingdom people the depth of what it is that your son is our king. Help us learn to trust him more fully, to proclaim him with more courage, to bring that message to the world, to be his kingdom workers. And so, Father, we pray now, as your Father taught us to pray, our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.